What's up and welcome to One Book Club Under Blackmail. We're going to continue reading One Nation Under Blackmail by Whitney Webb, starting with chapter four, which is particularly juicy. Let me try this again. I tried earlier, we ran into so I'm going to read this manually. I'm just going to see how, how far I can get. I'm probably just going to do the first segment of this chapter today, the first two segments. And, oh, I'm on chapter two right here. Let's see. I need, yeah, chapter four. This is a long chapter. Okay, here we go. Chapter four, Roy Cohn's Favor Bank. The city's preeminent manipulator, Roy Cohn, whose public reputation ranged from boy wonder to sleazy mob, sleazy mob lawyer over the course of his lifetime, was one of the most influential political operators in the country for the better part of three decades. Not only would he serve as Joseph McCarthy's right-hand man during the height of the Red Scare, he would also help secure the electoral victories of prominent politicians in New York and beyond, including for U.S. presidents. Years after his death, Cohn's protege, New York real estate billionaire Donald Trump, would serve as the 45th president of the United States. Yet for someone who was so influential, both his admirers and detractors have declined to dig too deeply into his career and dealings, particularly those that are most unsavory. Part of this may owe to Cohn's apparently contradictory nature. He was an anti-communist crusader that closely collaborated with the FBI, as well as a close, confident business associate and legal counsel to some of the biggest names in organized crime. Perhaps for that reason, Cohn's story is central when detailing the rise of networks that are the focus of this book. Roy Cohn was a man once called New York City's preeminent manipulator, precisely because he was a one-man network of contacts that have reached into the city hall, mob, the press, the archdiocese, Disco jet set, the courts, and the back rooms of the Bronx in Brooklyn where judges were made and political contributions are arranged. In addition, Cohen's ability to manipulate the press, politics, and much more may have been partially due to his ability to wield blackmail in a way similar that pract in a way similar that practiced by his close associate and friend J. Edgar Hoover. This particular relationship aspects of which were discussed in chapter two may explain why long after Cohn's death in 1986, much of the FBI file on Cohn believed to be over 4,000 pages long in total has still not been made publicly available despite efforts by Cohn biographers and others over the years. Cohn's background in the earlier parts of his career serve as a useful window into how the world of above board and legitimate business and politics has intermingled with the criminal underworld throughout the decades and how blackmail was critical to Cohn's ability to successfully navigate these murky gray areas between the legal and the Ill illegal. So Al Cohn, the New York machine. Roy Cohn's father, Albert Cohn, was the son of immigrants from Poland who, whose limited financial means forced Albert to skip high school. He eventually attended City College, um, Working his way through university and graduated in 1903, afterwards he attended New York Law School, teaching high school classes simultaneously and became a practicing lawyer in 1908. In 1910, Albert Cohn became heavily involved in the Democratic Party clubhouses based in the Bronx, which involved 
attending the once a week meetings, working the precincts and winning the district leader's favor, according to Roy Cohn biographer Nicholas von Hoffman. Albert's connections to the Bronx Democrats grew strong enough that he was appointed assistant district attorney for the Bronx by 1917. At this point, Albert or Alcone sought to become a judge, but lacked the money that was necessary to secure such a position. This was because the party required payments from the men it put on the ballot as a form of fundraising. And the more influential the position, the more money was required. Cohn lacked such wealth, but continued to ascend through the ranks of New York's legal scene, becoming chief district attorney in 1923 under Brox County District Attorney Edward Glennon. Uh, around the time that Al Cohn had gone as far as he could without having the money required for judgeship he coveted, he met Dora Marcus, the daughter of a wealthy banking family. According to friends of Al Cohn and members of the Marcus family, the relationship between Cohn and Dora Marcus quickly led to an arranged marriage. As Dora was the ugly duckling daughter, they couldn't marry off. According to interviews given by members of the Marcus family, which aired in Matt Turner's 2019 documentary, Where's My Roy Cohn? Dora's father, Joseph S. Marcus, essentially offered Albert Cohn the money and influence necessary to become a judge in exchange for his marrying Dora. They married in January 1924, and a year later, Albert Cohn was appointed Brox County Judge by New York Governor Al Smith. Wow. After their marriage, Al and Dora argued about where to live with Al initially winning, securing their place in the Bronx. Al's desire to stay in the Bronx was motivated by his desire to stay connected to the political connections he developed where he handled the party's Jewish patronage on behalf of Bronx Party boss Ed Flynn. Alcone is regarded as a protege of Flynn's who came to wield substantial power in the Democratic Party, according to author Robert Shogan. In 1921, Cohn created the Pontiac Democratic Club at Flynn's behest in order to weaken the political base of a Flynn rival. Patrick Kane, the club, uh, Patrick Kane, the club later became, I'm sorry, let me just, uh, here, take that out. Okay. The club later became highly influential in local elections. Years later, Roy Cohn would describe his father as Flynn's chief lieutenant during this period, while his mother, Dora, would host annual dinner parties at their home in Flynn's honor. As a judge, Al Cohn was incredibly loyal to Flynn and the Democratic Party, according to historian Christopher Elias. When they needed Al to rule a certain way for reasons political or personal, he followed through. When they needed his support for a specific candidate, he gave it. When the son of a friend and fellow Democratic operative killed a young woman in an automotive an automobile accident, Al made a late night visit to the police station and straightened it out. Al's service to the party and to Flynn paid off with New York Governor Franklin Delano Roosevelt appointing Cohn to the Bronx Supreme Court in 1929, making him Roosevelt's first judicial appointment. At the time and for years afterwards, Flynn was one of Roosevelt's most senior uh, strategists. Eight years later, Albert Cohn was appointed to the state Supreme Court's uh, appellate division. Like many of the networks already explored in this book, the political machine in which Alcone was intimately nestled was interwoven with the city's criminal underworld. Some modern day mainstream sources trace the, organ the origin of organized crimes influence in New York's Democratic Party in 1931 when Lucky Luciano sent two hired guns to intimidate Harry Perry, 
the co-leader of Manhattan's second assembly district, demanding he step down in favor of Albert Mar- uh, Marinelli. However, the same crime syndicate had cozy ties with labor unions, a key component of the Democratic Party's power base going back to the 1920s, an arrangement for which mobster Arnold Rothstein was credited. Similarly, uh, Marcinelli's ties to the mob also dated back to the 1920s when he owed a trucking company that Lucy Luciano managed during the Prohibition era. Luciano had been responsible for helping Marinelli become the first Italian-American district leader at Tammany Hall, well before the incident with Perry, which speaks to organized crime's earlier influence over New York politics through Tammany. Uh, Yet after Perry slept, uh, stepped aside and ceded his position to Marinelli, the national crime syndicate's influence on New York politics, particularly the Democratic Party, became brazen. According to decades-old reports in New York Magazine, the move gave Marinelli and, by proxy, Luciano control over who was chosen to serve on grand juries, as well as counting the votes in local elections. The influence of the National Crime Syndicate on top New York politicians was considerable at the time when Albert Cohn was deeply involved in the Democratic affairs. For instance, Meyer Lansky is known to have donated to the political campaigns of Al Smith, the governor of New York. For much of the 1920s, Smith was a top figure with Tammany Hall, the political powerhouse of New York Democratic politics that controlled the Democratic Party. Uh, Nominations and became synonymous with corruption. Smith is regarded as one of the main protégés of Tammany boss Charles M. Murphy, who had worked to improve the organization's reputation until his death in 1924. However, Murphy's success in cleaning up Tammany's public image did not extend long past his death largely because many of the top names of the organization have remained closely enmeshed with the city's criminal underworld despite efforts. Uh, During the now infamous effort of the National Crime Syndicate to rig the Democratic National Convention in 1932 in favor of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, it was a tearful Al Smith who had personally warned Luciano, Lansky, and Costello that Roosevelt would betray them. Smith specifically warned that Roosevelt would break his promise to restrain an official inquiry into criminal activity in New York City, promise Roosevelt had made to appease organized criminal interest in order to secure his nomination. The anecdote was relayed separately by both Lansky and Luciano. Uh, Smith's warning, which the crime bosses had ignored, turned out to be true as Roosevelt allowed the inquiry led by Judge Samuel Seabury to advance after his nomination was cemented. The inquiry soon exposed the extensive criminal activity being conducted by Tammany politicians, leading several top officials to resign. Jimmy Walker, the Tammany-backed mayor of New York City and Al Smith's own protege, not only resigned as mayor, but fled to Paris to avoid charges. Regarding the 1932 convention, Luciano later stated that it was commonly known at the time that his criminal enterprise controlled most of New York City's delegates to the convention, which speaks to their considerable influence over the party's dealings in the city in that period. Uh, Seabury and Roosevelt's combined determination to clean up the Democratic Party's image in New York, however, saw Tammany's influence wane due to his entrenched association with organized crime becoming public knowledge. The National Crime Syndicate's influence on New York politics nevertheless remained strong well past Tammany's fall from grace. The elder Cohn remained deeply involved in the Democratic political apparatus during this period and as mentioned was specifically close to Edward Flynn who had tightly controlled the Democratic Party in the Bronx since 1922. Flynn who was another protege of Tammary Hall 
boss Charles Murphy, but not a Tam a Tammany member himself, became favored by Roosevelt in the wake of the Seabury inquiry, supposedly because Flynn had kept his distant his distinct his district free from corruption. An argument can be made, however, that Flynn had merely kept his district and his own reputation free from a public association with corruption, as Flynn later moved to protect the mob-linked politician William O'Dwyer, a Shogun. Uh, Odor was one of the Cones family's fa uh, the Cones family's famous family friends. Uh, the rise of William Dwyer, uh, not unlike that of Thomas Dwey, was based on his reputation as a crusader against organized crime, including Mayor Lansky's murder, Incorporated, and specifically his role in the takedown of syndicate boss Louis Lepke uh, Richalter. It had been disputed, however, that as to whether the reality of the Bashalter case was the same as what was publicly reported, i.e. ex-cop Odor bravely taking on the mob, or rather the masking of the consolidation of mob power into fewer hands. As noted by Sally Denton and Roger Morris, the money and power, it was Lansky himself who had arranged for the Bachalter to be arrested by the FBI and Federal Bureau of Narcotics in 1937. Of this aliens, Denton and Morris write that the betrayal of Bachalter at once removed Lansky rival gratified Hoover and FBN director Harry Anslinger in the mutual obsession with popular image. Further compromised federal law enforcement, which was growing ever more dependent on informers and double agents for success, successes. Both Dewey and Odor prosecuted Buchalter with great zeal, gaining considerable recognition for themselves in the process. The man they took down, however, had already been consigned to death by both his friends and the government before Dewey and Odor were even involved, which cast doubt on the narrative that Buchalter's prison sentences and eventual death sentence were merely the result of Dewey's and Odor's prosecutorial abilities. Further doubt regarding the official story of this incident is raised when one considers that both star prosecutors had their own ties to the same syndicate, with Dewey's ties to Mary Carter, Paint Resorts International having already been noted in Chapter 1, in the case of Odor, he was meeting with Frank Costello in the same year he secured Bichalter's death sentence. Odor ran for mayor of New York in 1941 and lost, but he was later elected in 1945, largely on his anti-corruption public image. However, an investigation launched by an attorney Odor had once hired and who was successfully elected to Odor's old position as Brooklyn District Attorney Miles McDonald, brought that image and Odur's career crashing down. In 1950, McDonald began investigating Harry Gross, who had been running a multi-million dollar gambling empire in the city. The investigation into Gross grew rapidly with McDonald discovering a series of other related rackets throughout the city. Most of those rackets led back to one man, James Morgan, the man who had served as Odur's right-hand man when Odur served as judge as a district attorney. And now as the city's mayor. Once word got out that McDonald was on to Moran, heat started to be applied from the very top, which Odor denouncing the man he had once hired and calling his investigation a witch hunt. So let me just check a message real quick. Take a little breather. Okay, back to it. Um... 
So soon afterward, Ed Flynn called President Harry Truman and urgently requested a meeting. No formal record of the meeting exists, but it's believed that the topic was implications that McDonald's investigation would have not just for New York City, but for the Democratic Party and Truman himself. Two days later, Truman met with the head of New York's Democratic Party with a close associate of Flynn's, Paul Fritz Patrick. He then met with Eleanor Roosevelt, whose influence on the New York Democratic Party was still considerable, according to David Samuels. What McDonald's investigation would reveal, Flynn and Fitzpatrick knew that Mayor Odour was the frontman of a system of citywide corruption that was administered by Moran and the mayor's closest political associate. Worse, they knew, as the public would find out the following August from the public testimony of gangster named Irving Sherman, that Odour and Moran had been meeting personally with the syndicate boss Frank Costello as far back as 1941. And as a former chairman of the Democratic National Committee, Flynn also knew that the urban political operatives that had helped elect Franklin Roosevelt to the presidency four times and Truman once were based on a system of unsavory alliances, putting Odour on the stand, would put the Democratic Party in New York and elsewhere on trial. One way to keep Odour safe from McDonald's grand jury was to get him out of the country. This is precisely what happened as Truman appointed Odour to be ambassador to Mexico, which allowed Odour to avoid charges and further scrutiny. Ed's Flynn close, Ed Flynn's close ally and accomplice in helping orchestrate this deal to protect Odour, Paul Fitzpatrick, thanked Truman in a letter. Your recent announcement of the pending appointment of the ambassador to Mexico again proves to me your deep understanding of many problems and your kindness in regarding in rendering assistance, may I just say thanks. Uh, though Odour had escaped from McDonald's investigation, he was forced to return to the U.S. from Mexico City to testify before the uh, Cafalver Committee on his alleged dealings with organized crime in March 1951. During his testimony, he did not deny having visited Frank Costello's home in 1941. He also admitted that he'd appointed the friends and relatives of powerful mobsters to public offices and became evasive when asked how much he had known about their ties to organized crime at the time. A subsequent report issued by the committee stated that during Mr. Odour's term of office as district attorney of Kings County between 1940 and 1942 and his occupancy of the uh, mayoralty from mayoralty from 1946 to 1950, neither he nor his appointees took any effective action against the top echelons of the gambling, narcotics, waterfront, murder, or bookmaking rackets. While this time as mayor had contributed to the growth of organized crime, racketeering, and gangsterism in New York City. Less than a year later, Odur's right-hand man, James Moran, was convicted on 23 counts of extortion for his role in the corruption McDonald had exposed. If Flynn was indeed a Bronx political boss who was free of scandal and corruption, as some historians claim, it's hard to justify why he would intervene so dramatically, directly involving the White House in order to protect the corruption that had enabled Odor. Rather, he stepped in to protect the system of unsavory alliances that had given his party its power, including its obvious organized crime ties. There was also the fact that a young boy as a young boy, Roy Cohn had been considerably involved with and worked on Odour's election campaign, bragging that he had been the one who had found dirt on Odour's Republican uh, challenger. 
the mob connections and the use of dirt and blackmail in politics is something that would later define much of Roy Cohn's career and ultimately his legacy. So when we get back to this next time, we're going to get into Uncle Bernie's bank and see what that's all about. But let's just check in with you guys, see if you have any questions, any comments about what's going on here. Basically, we're learning a little bit about uh, the history of Roy Cohn's father and his deep connections to uh, the mafia and politics in New York at the turn of the 19th century or 18th century. It's going to be 20th century, sorry, the 20th century and um, the 1900s, you know. And yeah, it's pretty interesting to see how uh, closely involved the mob is in New York to all of these prominent politicians, Roosevelt, um, uh, who else uh, was the other one? Truman, I believe. Uh, but uh, interesting stuff. I'm kind of tired of reading right now. We'll get back to this again later. This has been a real quick 20-minute episode just to catch you guys up on where we're at. And uh, looking forward to cracking this book open again later and getting even deeper into the secrets of the Jeffrey Epstein Network. So I'll catch you guys.